as, uh, as Americans, as Americans, we cherish our freedom. And as teenagers, we can't wait for our freedom. I don't know how many of you can look back, but I remember turning 16 and getting my driver's license. And I was so excited about that, and even in the weeks and months to come, so excited that I had my driver's license. And one of the primary reasons was because I had freedom. We had an extra car, and it meant that I could go places, like 7-Eleven, whenever I wanted to. Simple things like that were a pleasure and a joy, because I could finally do it on my own. I remember hearing some of the kids, that our middle school and high school kids, that went on our breakaway trip, which is our middle school and high school go in February and in March to a Young Life camp, uh, along with the Falls Church Anglican and a few other churches. And a number of kids talking about one of their favorite times was free time. Literally because there was two, three, four hours in the middle of the day on Saturday or on Sunday when they and their friends could choose to do what they wanted. If they wanted to sit and do nothing, they could do it. If they wanted to play basketball, they could do it. If they wanted to talk by the pool, they could do it. If they wanted to go for a walk, they could do it. If they wanted to go buy snacks, they could do it. That freedom to do what you want when you want to. It's a great desire and drive of every 12 to 18-year-old. And one of the reasons is because, quite frankly, you guys are always being ruled. Somebody is always there to tell you what to do. It's your parents or it's your teachers or it's your coaches. Somebody is always there to, to keep you in check. So any bit of freedom when you can do what you want feels great. And it fits right in with our American sensibilities, right? Our sense of freedom in America is actually autonomy. I can do what I want when I want and nobody's going to tell me otherwise. But I wonder, as we've talked about here, is that really true freedom? Is doing what you want when you want without any constraints really freedom? Or is there something more? You know, even the writers of the Declaration of Independence recognized that there was something more, something deeper. They wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator, so from God, with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And while it can be argued that they had a very limited view on who these rights pertain to, they were pointing to something that there is a freedom and a liberty that is God-given, that is deeper than just doing what you want. And we've talked about that here, and we're going to talk about it again today, that we are made for freedom. But it is a better freedom than just breaking away from your parents or not having teachers to tell you what to do. And it's a far deeper freedom than settling for doing what I want when I want without any restraints. It's the created freedom, the freedom that is going to be ours for eternity, and the sort of freedom that is only available in Christ Jesus. You know, the book of Galatians, which we're looking at today in Galatians chapter 5 as we continue our gospel-driven series, could almost be called a whole letter that Paul writes about the gospel of freedom. In Galatians 5.1, we get this passage, this verse that, that is a, a big primary movement in the book of Galatians. When Paul writes, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul is contrasting slavery and freedom. 
That in Christ there is freedom, and that apart from Christ there is slavery. And one of the things that you look at if you read the whole of the book of Galatians is that what God does in Jesus Christ is provide us sort of liberation and freedom from all sorts of things. Last week, Brian White was preaching on the end of Galatians 3, where Paul lays out that in the gospel, even the evil, unjust social structures of the culture of the day are being undone by what Jesus has done. When he says there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, we are all one in Christ. You know, we take for granted in the West and in America a lot of these equality ideas. You know where they come from? They come from that. They come from that biblical foundation that God loves all of us, that there is not a race that he favors over another. In a culture and age when men were superior to women, the gospel comes along and says, in Christ, we are both equal. This is amazing and was incredible liberation for those who were bound by the social structures of their day. But of course, we know the liberation that the gospel is talking about is far deeper than pushing against the evils of the world. The liberation that Jesus brings is from sin, from Satan, and from death. It is a gospel of salvation from everything that is truly wrong with us and the world around us. In Jesus Christ, we are liberated from sin, finally and forever. But one other thing that the gospel liberates us from, and Paul hits on it in our passage today, it's the central focus, is that the gospel also liberates us from moral obedience. The gospel liberates us from being good as a means of salvation. (laughs) Think about the implications of that. What Paul is saying is that religion, trying to be good, is just as enslaving as sin and immorality. Morality and immorality as ways of finding yourself are both enslaving. Let's look a little further at this passage and see how it gives us the problem and points us to the hope we can have for true freedom in Christ. In Galatians 5.2, Paul hits at the central issue in the entire book of Galatians. The reason why he's even writing this letter is because there was a problem in Galatia. Paul says, look, Galatians 5.2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So this is the central issue in the book of Galatians. The central issue is this. Certain religious leaders had come in and were requiring circumcision of the Galatian Christians. This sounds ever so fascinating, doesn't it? Let's break it down and then get to what it's saying. There were certain religious leaders who had come in after Paul had preached the gospel and people had believed in Jesus Christ. Certain religious leaders had come in and said, you believe in Jesus, but now you need to be circumcised in order to complete your faith. Now, who were these religious leaders? These religious leaders were not people coming in and selling drugs to kids on the corner. They were not trafficking people. They were not forcing people into vice or immorality. What were they doing? They were encouraging, forcing, requiring that these Galatian believers added religious activity. You need to be circumcised. 
So these religious leaders were devout, very earnest people. But they were requiring circumcision. What is circumcision? I don't want to get into the medical details of it. Let's just say it's a mark that identifies somebody. And in that day and age, it identified you as one of God's people in the Old Testament. It was an external thing done to you or that you did that said, I am Jewish. I am faithful to God's covenant. In other words, it was a religious practice, just like any religious practice that we can add on. So the question is, why is this such a big deal to Paul? Circumcision was not in and of itself a sin. It's not listed in one of the Ten Commandments, do not be circumcised. It's quite the opposite. But listen to how strong Paul's words are in verses 2 through 4. Look, I, Paul, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. At the very beginning of this sentence, Paul is rhetorically shouting. He says, look, behold, hey, pay attention. Look at me. And then what does he say? He says, I, Paul, say to you. In the Greek, it's actually he refers to himself three times. I, Paul, I say. When you do something three times in a Jewish or Greco-Roman context, it's meant to be emphatic. You're underlining this. You're saying, this is incredibly important. Listen up. He's throwing the full weight of his apostleship behind what he's about to say. Saying, what I'm about to say is incredibly important. This is not a minor detail. This is not, you know, whether you tie your shoes before you go out the door. This is incredibly important. And then what does he say? Is the big thing he's talking about? If you let yourself be circumcised, if you take on this religious practice, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You will actually be severed from Christ. You want to cut off some skin? Go ahead. You're going to be cut off from Jesus. And you will have fallen away from grace. Circumcision was not in and of itself bad. But if it was added on to faith in Jesus as necessary, then what the Galatians would be doing is saying, Jesus is not enough. Jesus' death on the cross is not sufficient. I must do something else. Yes, I believe in Jesus, but I've also got to be circumcised. And Paul says, that's not the gospel anymore. And he goes on to say, you're actually obligated to keep the entire law. You want to obey one religious rule as necessary? Then you've got to keep them all. And you can no longer depend on the cross to save you. Now, jumping to today, we don't have as big of an issue with circumcision. But we do similar things. The idea that Paul is getting at is anything that we add to the gospel as necessary to salvation or to complete our Christianity. What do we add to faith in Christ to make it necessary? Well, we do this sometimes when we have a check-the-box sort of Christian faith. You know that way of thinking that, like, you have a series of boxes that make you feel good about your faith? Like, I went to church. Check. 
And as long as you check the box, whatever that box is, you feel good. And if you don't check the box, oh, I didn't go to church this week, you feel guilty and bad. Possibly you're making church attendance like circumcision. We can do this actually in the way that we can become obsessed, or some people do, with their denominational distinctives. In order to be a real Christian, you've got to be a five-point Calvinist. You don't really love Jesus unless you speak in tongues. If you haven't been baptized as an adult, you're not really a Christian. Look, I think there's a place for denominational distinctives. And we each have some of those. Some of those are preferences. Some of those are guided by what we think is really true. But at the, at the base root, faith in Jesus Christ and him crucified is Christianity. And there are denominations that stray outside of that. But within that realm, holding loosely, not tightly, to the things we think are very important. And when we hold too tightly, we've created religion and not the gospel. Sometimes we simply add rules to ourselves. Like Christians who I've heard once say, well, you can't have communion twice in the same day. There's a tradition that's been carried on and passed on by word of mouth in certain traditions of the, of the church that say you can't have communion twice in the same day. Well, I read the book of order in that particular denomination, and it doesn't say anything about that. But we create rules of things you have to do or can't do and think, well, that's what it means to be a Christian. For me, I look back to when I was in high school. And when I was in 10th grade, I bought my, my first Bible. It was an NIV student Bible. And I started reading it on my own. And within a few years, I read it so much that it was dog-eared and tattered. I started having what was called quiet times. If you're not familiar with that, it's basically having a time of reading the Bible and praying every day. Well, in the circles that I was running in in high school... Having the most dog-eared Bible you could meant you were really a Christian. And we would even keep track and ask each other, how many quiet times, how many days of reading the Bible had you had in a row? 37. Mine was so rough I had to duct tape it. And then I nicknamed it the Silver Bullet. I'm not sure you should be nicknaming your Bibles, but... It was a sense of pride that I had added on. that gave me my sense of worth. I could look down on others who didn't even bring a Bible or clearly hadn't used theirs, and I could feel good about myself that I had accomplished so many days in a row of reading the Bible. Of course, I would feel horrible if I missed a few days or forgot my Bible. Sounds ridiculous, but we do this all the time. It's what I would call Jesus plus Christianity. You see, Jesus plus anything... Anything else that we think of as necessary ceases to be the gospel. Jesus plus church attendance. Jesus plus tithing, which is giving 10% of your income. Jesus plus raising your hands when you're singing songs. Jesus plus volunteering. I volunteer more than you, and therefore I feel better about myself. Jesus plus having well-behaved kids. That's what really makes you a Christian. Jesus plus anything. Jesus plus anything as necessary nullifies the gospel of grace and is not Christianity. And ultimately, as Paul gets at, religiousness is enslaving. He says in our passage, 
For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not submit to the slavery of religion. You know, slavery is a very packed and weighty term. Today, we think of human trafficking. We think of of whole families that are being forced into labor in places like India for 15 hours a day. We think of America's own horrible history from just a century plus ago of chattel slavery as, as was portrayed in things like 12 Years a Slave or Amistad or Roots. We know and have, have observed, at least in reading and documentaries, the, the horror of slavery. In the first century, it wasn't quite as horrid, but it was still a, a dehumanizing entity. Slavery is dehumanizing. It involves horrible suffering. And the slave lives in constant fear and hopelessness. Now think about all those images of slavery and consider this. When Paul is talking about religion and moral goodness, the chosen image that he uses is slavery. See, the Galatians... The Galatians had been pagan idolaters. They were most likely immoral, amoral, did what they wanted, irreligious, following other gods. And we get the idea that that sin and vice can be enslaving. Look at this image here. The idea that sin and vice can be enslaving. Because many sins fall into courses of addiction. Because here's what you find. The more you go down them, if you step outside of God's purposes for you sexually, if you step outside of them relationally, if you step outside of them with your money, you'll find that you need more and more and more to be satisfied. It's addicting and enslaving. But the problem in Galatia has nothing to do with immorality and has everything to do with being good. See, the problem was not cocaine or pornography, or gossiping, or lying, all of which are addictive. But circumcision, being religiously good. And what Paul is suggesting is both religious moralism and irreligious hedonism are both burdensome and enslaving. And we can see this because when we find our identity and our worth, when we find our standing before God and others based on our moral performance, then what will happen is we'll end up swinging between guilt, because we're not doing the right things, or self-righteousness, because we're fulfilling all of the rules that we've laid out for ourselves. But in the end, when you're following a religious course, when you've made Christianity Jesus plus something else that you have to do, you can never be sure you're accepted. You can never be sure God really loves you, because you can never be sure you've done enough. Have you volunteered enough? Did you miss too many church services? Is your Bible dog-eared enough? Religiousness enslaves just as much as sin does. But there's good news. There's good news in what Jesus Christ has done. In the gospel of freedom, Paul writes in Galatians 5.1, For freedom... Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. This tells us not only what Christ did, he set us free, 
but also the goal of what Christ did, so that we might be free. Freedom is the goal and what Jesus has done. Think about it this way. If you break that apart, the first is Christ has set us free, Paul declares. This is a finished, done, completed act in the Greek. It is a tense that says, that was done. You have been set free. On the cross, through Jesus' death and resurrection, your freedom has been accomplished. Jesus fulfilled God's law perfectly for us who cannot. And Jesus took our punishment for law-breaking so we need not. The cross frees us. It sets us free from Satan and sin as well as from religiousness and law obedience. So we are no longer bound by sinfulness or moral goodness as a means of achieving our life. The cross also frees us from condemnation and restores us to relationship with God so that now we can enjoy the goal, which is for freedom. Now, the Spirit enters us by faith and brings new and free life. Paul writes about it in verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What does freedom look like? Freedom looks like having the hope of righteousness. And if I was going to break that down, the word hope does not mean the right sort of thing in English. It's too weak of a word in English. When we say, I'm hoping for something, we think it might not happen. Like, I hope I get a hit in the game today. But the word hope in the biblical and Greek context is more like a certainty that you have excitement about. Like, I'm so excited that in two weeks school gets to start. It is going to start, and maybe you are actually excited about it. You know it's going to happen. I'm excited for Christmas. I'm looking forward to it. It's not, oh, I wonder if Christmas will happen or not. No, it is going to happen, and so I anticipate it and enjoy it even now. And the righteousness that we have hope in is being set right with God now and forever. The freedom that we have is a full confidence of who I am before God today and always will be. And there's also a freedom of having a right perspective and focus. When he says that now what matters is not circumcision or uncircumcision. We're not trying to be good or bad, but faith working through love. Now I live in worshipful trust of God, walking in the ways of God. Now I've moved from the, the two balls of slavery, the one I'm trying to carry or the one I'm chained to, and into the realm of gospel freedom, which is the image of life in the Spirit, walking in the ways of God. Here's what I've found. When you enter into faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God actually changes your heart's desires so that you no longer just want to have freedom to do whatever you want. You actually begin to desire God, wanting to walk in His ways, hungering for more of Him. So I can now live as I'm intended to and experience true freedom. 
in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, I now want to do what God made me to do. And that is really freedom. Tim Keller, in his Galatians study, puts it much better than that when he says this. The most common sense definition of freedom is to be able to do what you most want to do. Paul is saying that only in the gospel, only in the gospel does pleasing and obeying God finally become what we most want to do. That is freedom. At last, our deepest desires conform to the realities of the universe and to our own nature. Last. True freedom is knowing, enjoying, worshiping, and following God. So are you free? You know, if you're a Christian, you may not think that you're trying to live justified by your works. And if you're skeptical of Christianity today, you may not think of yourself as religious. None of us thinks of ourselves as enslaved to the religious approach in life. But are we? You might ask a few questions, a few questions like this. Have you ever struggled with insecurities? Ever. You might ask, what motivates you to do good? How do you handle success? How do you handle failure? Have you ever in your life looked down on others? Now, I know that it's inappropriate to be judgmental outwardly of others, but have you ever inside your head thought, I'm better than that person? At least my kids don't behave like them. In any way, thought of yourself as better than others. Or ask, is your identity and self-worth affected, moved by what you're accomplishing or how you're performing in life? To the extent that it is in any of these areas, it's very possible that you're following, at least in your day-to-day living, a religious mentality rather than a gospel mentality. You know, to become a member of Christ Church Vienna, you have to do three things. And if you want to become a member, we're doing membership this fall. We do it once a year in November on our anniversary. But the three things you have to do is sign our membership covenant, which is outside on the info table. You can see that. It's basic Christianity. You have to leave your previous church well. If you don't know what that means, talk to me. And you have to do the gospel and life study in one of the groups here at Christ Church Vienna. On page 16, there's a great table that lays out the differences between a religious mentality and a gospel-driven mentality. So let's look at a few of these, just as comparisons, to see which one maybe we lean towards sometimes on a given day. Maybe we are more enslaved to religion than we thought. So the first table here talks about our motives for doing good. In a religious mentality, I obey, therefore I must be accepted by God. I obey God in order to get good things. Because I know if I'm good, good stuff should happen to me. But in a gospel mentality, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I know I'm loved. I want to obey. I obey to get God, to delight in and resemble him. 
Or in the second table, it's how we deal with suffering. The religious mentality is when circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God or I'm angry at myself since I believe that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. This is the idea of karma. And karma is not a Christian idea. The idea that if something bad is happening, it's probably because of something I did. And if something bad's happening and I've been good, then I need to be angry at somebody. And so I'm either angry at myself or angry at God or angry at you if bad stuff happens because it's just not fair. But in a gospel mentality, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I am going to struggle because no one is going to enjoy suffering. But I know that all my punishment fell on Jesus, meaning God is not punishing me. And while God may allow suffering or trial for my, for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. In the gospel mentality, I'm, I can experience and know God almost more fully in the midst of trial. Are you religious or are you gospel-driven? How about our approach to moral performance, the third one? In the religious mentality, my self-view is based on how I'm performing. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident. But then I'm prone to be proud or unsympathetic to people who are failing. And if I'm not living up to my standards, I feel humble but not confident. I feel like a failure. I'm swinging between feeling arrogant and self-righteous or guilty and defeated and a failure. But in a gospel view, my self-view is not based on my moral achievement because I know that I'm both lost and sinful and yet accepted and loved in Christ. I'm so bad that he had to die for me and I'm so loved that he was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and confidence at the same time. You know, we can turn almost anything into a religious way of living. Anything that we turn to for our identity, our worth, our value, can become a religion. I was talking to one person not long ago who's a gifted vocalist, and she's looking at a career in singing. And when I talk to her about these sorts of things, what do you turn to for your identity, your worth, your meaning, what gives you joy, what steals your joy, she admitted I guess singing is my religion. I guess you'd call it singingism. What's yours? Parentingism? Baseballism? Careerism? Fantasy footballism? What do you turn to for your identity and worth? Or what have you added to your Christian faith as necessary? When we add anything, we get religion not the gospel. Paul is saying to us, just as he's saying to the Galatian Christians, you have been freed. You have been set free from slavery to sin and condemnation. So don't burden yourself with religion or trusting in your moral performance. No more Jesus plus anything else religion. Just the gospel. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ crucified. That's it. Let's pray. Jesus, on the cross, you set us free from sin and Satan and death.
set us free from condemnation and the fear of eternal judgment. You also set us free from the need to be morally perfect, to trust in our own religious goodness. God, help us who struggle to trust the God who loves us, who forgives us, and who accepts us on the basis of Jesus Christ and Him alone. Amen.